Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or com slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we are welcoming Kevin Frazier. Kevin is the author, publisher, editor, I don't I don't know exactly, of the Oregon Way blog. Um, the Oregon Way has uh, published several of uh, Nick and I's mutual friends, as well as people on the other side of the aisle. And uh, it's a really interesting um, blog newsletter um, thing that's Oregon specific. And so being an Oregon specific podcast, I think it's really interesting to talk to Kevin and uh, hear about his journey um, from the Democratic side to a little bit more to the center, which Nick and I have also struggled with. So uh, on from the other side, from the other side. Yeah. Um, So Kevin, why don't we start out? You just give a maybe two minute bio of who you are, how you got into politics. um, Hi, Bentley. Yeah. Sure thing. Well, thanks for having me. Always uh, thrilled to be on shows that have rational conversations. Especially <laughs> it's in our, these it's in our days. title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I knew I was in a good spot and always happy to talk with Oregonians interested in helping folks find common ground. And my background, really, I like to say that I grew up watching too much of the West Wing. And oh, so... Yes. <laughs> I was just surrounded by this notion that, oh, if you want to solve problems, then you go into politics and you'll meet mm-hmm. folks like CJ and Josh and everything's going to work out because people are pragmatic and idealistic and it's great. So I was that kid in high school, growing up in Washington County, reading the paper, digging into the Valley Times, and I see Beaverton Civic Engagement Committee. And I'm like, oh, this sounds like a great time to spend, you know, all of my free time on. Um, And so I joined this citizen engagement committee, was the youngest guy by probably two decades and was just blown away by how much room for improvement there was in terms of getting young folks involved in politics. And as you two know, once you start getting involved and showing an interest in Oregon politics, things quickly cascade because it's a small state, you just meet new people and there are new opportunities. So that next opportunity for me was working for then state representative Tobias Reed. And I was an intern, licking letters, sending out mailers, all that good stuff. And I learned from him really what it meant to be a constituent oriented representative. He does a great job of reaching out to his constituents, being present in the community. And so my West Wing notions of public service were being fulfilled. And I thought, great, I'm going to keep going. And ultimately, after being the president of the College Democrats of Oregon, and then working for Governor Brown as her executive assistant, 
I slowly but surely got exposed to some less ideal aspects of Oregon politics. And that was really furthered by an opportunity I had while leading a nonprofit called Passport Oregon that helped kids in what we called undernatured communities go explore other parts of the state. And in those travels, seeing just how disconnected some parts of Oregon felt from where the decision makers were and where the power was held mm. was shocking because you began to realize that so much of the policy coming out of Portland, coming out of Salem, just doesn't jive at all with the lived reality of where so many Oregonians are. So and can so, I ask, were, were, oh, like, were you looking specifically at like at Eastern Oregon, like rural Oregon ag, or were you looking at like, underserved like communities, minority communities, you know, tribal areas, anything like that. Like what's because I mean, it's like we talk about it a lot, but Jimbo and I are obviously Portland based. And so it's like we understand that there's a whole big other state out there. But like I never lived in any of it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So our primary trips were taking uh, kids from the Portland metro area out to other parts of the state. But as being the executive director, I called myself the chief exploration officer because that was way more fun. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, I had the chance to just, I would call up people in random parts of the state and say, hey, what would it take for us to come visit you? And what would be a meaningful experience for these kids? And those conversations always dovetailed into policy and what it was like in their community and how things were on the ground. And That was such a great experience, also coupled with, while I was in the governor's office, being able to travel to all parts of the state. So suddenly I was spending time in Roseburg. I flew out to Pendleton. I was in the Grand and along the coast. And it really does take getting out in those communities to see that you can't govern well from Salem if you've never gone and seen Baker City. You're just not going to know what it's like to live a day in those shoes. You know what kind of I mean, obviously, being Republicans, we we talk a lot to those folks from out in those areas. But kind of one of the things that hit me was when we had the fire, wildfires last summer, um, because in Portland, all the smoke came in here and you had your, you know, Portlandites t- complaining about the smoke and I can't go outside and I can't go running and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, entire communities burned down. Right. You know, people lost their, their not just their home, but all their neighbors homes and their entire cities burned down. Like it was, and we're complaining about the smoke here in in Portland. So you're absolutely right. It's a very different experience being out in in rural Oregon than it is. uh, Can I, as a a quick anecdote to that, on the episode where we had Representative Davis, uh, Representative Shelley Boss of Davis on, um, she, she was, you know, fires had hit her community near Albany and she went, you know, she heard that people were getting together like at the fairgrounds, try to start helping each other out or whatever. And there was a whole section dedicated to livestock because, you know, people's farms were burning. And so they had to bring their cows and their chickens and their horses and whatever. And for me as a Portlander, I was just that was such a like foreign because like, obviously, I understand that there are people who have farms and people who have animals. But it's just like, well, of course, they have to go somewhere. But, you know, for me, for us here in Portland, it was just like, oh, that's smoke. Like, well, you know, close your windows. And, yeah, you can't go can't go on your jog. You can't go have your, you know, can't go to your favorite brewery or whatever can't get a beer at migration and it's just like oh my god like it's she had so much more work to do and so like it was just such a really that obviously was a great episode she's a great guest friend of the pod 
Yeah, no, and I think the thing that's been so much fun about the Oregon Way, this blog I'm running that we aim to have voices from across the Cascades and across the political spectrum is learning about how different communities in Oregon have to solve problems. So Sarah White, for example, example, she lives down in Silverton. When the fires hit and when the freeze hit this winter in particular, Mm -hmm. their response to the freeze wasn't, hey, we're going to wait for emergency response from the government or from even the county. It was, what can we do for our neighbors? And that was not something, you know, my parents live up in Tualatin and they said, oh, we'll go stay in this hotel. Well, that's not an option available to most Oregonians. And that's why I'm so keen on amplifying this blog and getting more folks to spend time on this blog is because suddenly you realize that the way other Oregonians have to solve problems and the way they begin to think about solving problems is almost rarely you know, oh, what is the government going to do to help me out in this situation? It's what is my church? What is this small business? What are my neighbors going to be able to do to help me? Mm-hmm. And that I think is a kind of policy framework that doesn't get thought about enough in Salem. And it's fun to see folks engaging with these concepts, even though it's only on paper, I think we're doing a good job of slowly but surely exposing folks to more experiences of Oregonians. Good, good. So you kind of mentioned uh, before the pod that you have kind of you were you were heavily involved with the Democratic Party. You were president of the College Democrats, and you had kind of uh, they they had kind of soured a little bit in your opinion. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, the biggest wake up for me was actually moving down to San Francisco so that I could attend UC Berkeley School of Law. And I thought, great, well, I was a Democrat up in Oregon. I'll come down to California and it's going to be great. I'll just slide into the Democratic Party and do the same work I was doing up in Oregon in terms of finding ways to use my skills and help move the party forward. And as soon as I tried to get involved, it was, who are you? You're an out-of-towner. Why should we trust you with anything? You need to wait in line and wait your turn. And I'm thinking, huh, I'm eager to do work for free for the party. I have a lot of passion and I like to think I have some skills. This doesn't seem like a healthy environment. And then I thought back on, okay, maybe my perception of what the Democratic Party was in Oregon for a lot of other Oregonians wasn't quite as rosy as it, you know, in my shoes, it may have been great, but for many others, they have maybe had the same experience I had in California when they were joining the Democratic Party up in Oregon. And so taking that step back to realize, huh, are we doing enough work to make this a truly inclusive and collaborative experience? And really, I think the answer is no, because there's so many things that the party has yet to address, such as its closed primaries, that to me are just completely out of line with the idea of an an inclusive, collaborative democracy Mm. that just didn't jive with me. And I think also I had seen enough people who thought, huh, I want to get involved in Oregon democratic politics only to have someone say, no, you need to wait in line or no, go volunteer 
for free for, you know, 200 hours calling people, and then we'll think about giving you a leadership role. I don't think that's healthy for a good democratic, uh, lowercase democratic experience is making people kind of go through steps to prove that they're true soldiers before giving them a chance to really use their skills. That was always, there was a a group that I worked with in college and that was like one of the, like the number one adage was give them a title and get them involved. And it's always like you find somebody who's willing to give his time, talent or treasure or some combination of the three, you, you get that person, you make them go right now. And I, by the time this, this episode is posted, that will, we're doing our best to limit mentions of the the current MCRP fracas just because it's a very uh, constantly changing situation. And I certainly, by the time this is posted, likely that situation will be resolved. But we're, we as Republicans here in Multnomah County are currently in the middle of the same thing. One group of Multnomah County Republicans says, no, we need to, we need to maintain our ideological purity and we need to have closed door meetings and we need to, I know you, since if you're a West Wing guy, you're going to know this, but we need to have our shibboleth. We need to have this one particular thing that nobody can, you know, can ever challenge or, or go against or anything. And then there's another faction that says, if you're gay, that's great. Come on in. If you're Muslim, that's great. Come on in. If you're trans, that's great. Come on in. Minorities, women, younger, socially moderate, you know, any any of a thousand things. But, it, you know, if you identify as a Republican and you want to see Republicans get elected, come on in, man. Let's let's start getting to work. Let's get some good things done. And uh, it's it's funny that, you know, you and I and Jay, we could all go, you know, punch for punch on this policy, this policy, this policy. And I'm sure we come up with a lot of disagreements, but it's just it's funny to hear that philosophically we're both very much in line. It's just like the government should be accessible. Politics should be accessible. Politics shouldn't be conducted behind closed doors. You want people to understand what's going on and how, you know, the people that they elect how their decisions affect what you do on a day-to-day basis. And one of the things that I really appreciated about uh, Stephen Lloyd, the recently recalled um, chairman of the Multnomah County Republicans was on our last episode is uh, he, he reached out to the Multnomah County Democrats. He called them up and said, Hey, look, we are Americans first. We're Oregonians first, and we are partisan politicians second. And he's like, if there's something that we can do together to make Oregon a better place, let's do it. And I thought that was fantastic. I mean, there's there there may not be a whole lot of things, but just opening that door and starting that dialogue, uh, because we we've gotten to the point. And this is one of the reasons we started this podcast is to have these kind of conversations with a lot of times. I mean, most people who agree with us, but with people who who don't always agree with us and have a rational discussion uh, and not bite each other's heads off, which um, that's kind of what. The talking heads on on uh, cable news have devolved politics into is just, you know, you have 45 seconds to throw as many jabs at the other guy as possible. And that's what we that's what we call political discourse. To be fair, they make a lot more money than we do. So maybe they're the smart ones (laughs) and we're not. A heck of a (laughs) lot more money. Well, and I think that really speaks the money aspect is so important here. Mm. And just the power aspect where I get it. I mean. And first, I do want to say, I know a lot of great folks in the Democratic Party who are inclusive and want to bring more people in, but the overall incentives for our party in the way we've set up our elections, for example, it's not in their interest to say, hey, let's bring in a bunch of free-thinking Oregonians to try to potentially derail our lockhold on this election or on this seat. I get it. That's the way the system's set up. But 
I think we can push ourselves further to ask, how can we serve people first and the party second? And the incentives just aren't there because parties want to retain power. It's in their interests to have these divisive topics that make you think there are only two options. Yeah, that's. I, I feel like that schism right there is best exemplified. The Tina Kotek v. Shamia Fagan on redistricting going on, and it's like, for for me, it's going to be a Democrat who does it either way. There's pro- they're probably going to draw the lines in a way that I didn't care for. Okay, whatever. Like. Our, my party is not in power in Oregon. This is what happens. Elections have consequences. But that there was such a, a schism between Tina Kotek and Shamia Fagan. And from what I had come to understand, that was one of Tina Kotek's concerns. Like, of course, you want power and responsibility for yourself. But she was like, Shamia Fagan's going to draw some of my friends out of their districts. They're going to get primaried by, you know, further left folks that Shamia Fagan likes. And, and now I'm going to look around and not know anybody here in my caucus. And it's just like, yeah, that's the, the, uh, ability and desire to retain power is a strongly motivating factor, very much to your point. Right. And I think now I've referred to this as using our democratic imagination. At some point, (laughs) we all kind of just fell asleep and got used to this idea that parties should control drawing our lines, choosing who's on our general election. And we've forgotten that the people are sovereigns. That's who's in control of our democracy. And yet we've denied things that you would think fit with, I guess, this historical idea of the Oregon way, such as an independent redistricting commission. I mean, that's a norm in states like Arizona, and yet it's not a norm in Oregon. That should give us pause. It should give us pause that we have some of the worst campaign finance laws that doesn't seem to be in this notion of the Oregon way either when we have out-of-state money or just massive donors skewing primaries. Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil. <laughs> but also on the left, you know, you got to look at what happened to Mark Hass getting yeah. essentially bought out of the secretary of state race. That's not a healthy democracy. And so yeah. I think that's where I love <clears throat> these sorts of conversations is because we can realize just the platform that we're operating on isn't allowing for the full set of competition, of fairness, of engagement across the aisle and across the political spectrum. But there are easy solutions out there. It just requires <laughs> like having a little bit of a democratic imagination to say we deserve better. So on the campaign finance thing with the the uh <laughs> the potential to go down a rabbit hole, which I'll try not to do. But I, th- I think the real problem with the campaign finance is Citizens United, the Supreme Court case um, in Oregon. And I've, I've heard so the, the argument on the on the conservative end of the spectrum is, you know, you're going to have big money in politics regardless, at least in Oregon. It's all out in the open. It has to be reported. And so you have Uncle Phil or the public employee unions giving millions or tens of millions of dollars to different campaigns. And it's all written down there in Orstar and it's not prohibited, but it's, but it's at least, you know, who bought your candidate. Whereas if you put restrictions in place, now all that money goes to dark money packs and pools. And now you're not really sure who's buying whom. And so that's, that's the counter argument to that. But I think I have advocated before, I I would love to see something like publicly funded campaigns. Um, But the problem with that is, Citizens United. So basically, I would I would love to say, hey, you're running for state rep. Here's ten thousand dollars, and uh, that's all you can spend. 
That's it, period. You get $10,000 to educate people however you feel like on your platform and that's it, no money. But then you would, in order to make that work, you would have to prohibit people from spending money on campaigns or on political messaging, which you cannot do according to Citizens United. So, so to, is- to further, <laughs> so I, I, well, I feel like I did this like three or four times on the Stephen Lloyd episode and like we, and Kevin, you, this happens all the time. Like Jimbo and I get emails and it's just like, you guys just agree with each other too much. Like I want to hear you. And so like, there was like four times in the episode that just came out with Stephen Lloyd where I was just like, you know, I disagree with that. This is another one. It's like, I, I disagree. I'm, I'm a pro citizens United guy. I think that was a, I think the Supreme court got that one. Right. I will say there was a publicly financed system for presidential campaigns. And there was one individual who I think it was like $80 million. Like, you know what? That's not enough. I think I can raise more money on my own and decline public financing. And as much as the left likes to rail against citizens United and the Koch brothers and everything, it was a Democrat who kind of tipped that domino over and the old, old Barry got himself elected for two terms as president. So it's like, you can't really argue with results. Yeah, but my comment, my comment on Citizen United is not whether or not it was accurate. I mean, the Supreme Court is is it was probably correct. I mean, that's how the Supreme Court works. I just I just think it's problematic. I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to change it. I'm just saying like that's I just mean it's probably correct. I just think it's a problem. The 2008 election was before the Citizens United decision, though. So it's I, like I, I oh. I'm I think that the money in pot, I think it is going to get there either way. But I I, I mean, Kevin, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you that it does. It has the potential to slant a voter's perception of a of a candidate when you when you know like I really thought I like this Mark Hass guy, but I keep seeing Shamia commercials everywhere. And I one of my one of my very good friends' wives was even just like she seems like a really nice person. She seems like a really caring mother. And there's these commercials with her kids or whatever. And it's just like no, no, she's evil. She's a she's a bad person. Don't do not vote for Shamia Fagan. <laughs> Shamia Fagan, come on our podcast. If you want. Well, I, I, I had, I'll, I'll say I'll say that you know I. I think of money as an amplifier of your message. And yes. if you're a candidate who is at all coming from a less than privileged background, your ability to get in that race is just nil. You can't buy name recognition like someone who has Uncle Phil in their back pocket. And to me, that's not a signal of a good democracy. Like I want everyone to have a chance to have their voice heard and to be elected on the merit of their ideas rather than their capacity to convince wealthy people to give them money. And that's what I'm saying. Like what, what if you could, what if you could run a campaign focused on your policy rather than focused on fundraising? I mean, how much more effective could you be? How many, how many better policies could you have in your back pocket when you get elected? If you just spent a year developing them rather than just calling people and running fundraisers and, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies and doing the whole politician thing. It it was just, Democracy would be so much better if you could not focus on money so much. And here's here's I'm going to go into a, a really uh, you can pull me out of this rabbit hole when you need me to, uh, and I'll, I'll come out. But you know, for me, I think we have seen that even once folks get elected, let's say to Congress in particular, because they're running every two years, they are part time public servants. They spend two to four hours a day dialing for dollars. And that is in their incentive structure to do so, right? They want job security. They want to make sure that they can ascend the party ranks by raising more money and giving more money to their friends. 
And the caucus a lot of times uh, rewards that, that if right. you if you fail to raise money, you all of a sudden don't get sponsored. You don't get money from the caucus and you lose your reelection campaign and they replace and, you with somebody who will raise money. Right. And so I think the idea that we're going to change Citizens United, for example, I know there's a group called American Promise that's trying to pass what they call the 28th Amendment to change Citizens United. That's good luck. It's going to be an uphill <laughs> battle. Uh, they've claimed to have a lot of support, which is encouraging, but I think what we have to do, and this goes back to my democratic imagination, is we may not be able to change laws, but we can change norms. And so if more voters were aware of just how broken it is to rely on a system of dialing for dollars, only elect candidates that pledge to accept money from in-state of less than, let's say, $1,000. That's within our purview. There's no one stopping us from developing norms that say, hey, I only want to elect people that are running on the strength of their policies and their community engagement and That's not their Rolodex. It's That's hard. hard to do. But I, I arguably, would say, it's easier no. <laughs> than changing laws. <laughs> I, I disagree. Um, so un until 2016, uh, I was basically just a normal normal voter, uh, Republican voter, normal, James. No, yeah, <laughs> nor, re, regular Republican voter. You know, I, I check the boxes on my form and send my, my, uh, my ballot in, but other than that, I wasn't really involved. And so, um, I mean, just kind of going back into my story a little bit, it was the Trump election that got me involved. Cause I was just so frustrated that that's what we had done with, with the Republican party, that that was the direction we were going. But anyway, that's not the, not the point. Uh, the point is five to seven years ago, I wasn't paying attention. And so I'm kind of to talk to um, political wonks like you guys and a lot of our friends and a lot of people we deal with a lot. Um, I think there's kind of this misconception that people care. Uh, the majority of people do not care. You know, that's why they have all these, you know, get out the vote uh, commercials and whatnot, because even just getting someone to fill in bubbles on a sheet and mail in a, a ballot, uh, a third to a quarter of people don't even can't even be bothered to do that, much less research candidates or understand what's going on or I, I think I think it's probably easier to to pass a constitutional amendment than it is to get you know a couple million Oregonians to be like you know what I don't like big money in politics I'm not going to vote for people who get who get major donations from major people or corporations or unions I um, should say that I I totally agree that Overnight and alone, that norm isn't just going to develop because people suddenly wake up and start, you know, reading <laughs> and or whatever, you know, uh, exchanging between the New York Times, then comparing and contrasting with the Wall Street right. Journal. That's not, yeah. <laughs> right. So right, right. <laughs> I think what I I see this as a broader focus that needs to emerge in our politics, which is seeing politics as distinct from party. And mm. we have conflated the two where to be civically involved means to be participating in a party. And I think we need to differentiate those two. It's fine if that's how you want to get involved. But right now, people see the only option to be a kind of big political wonk as being really invested in a party. And that, to me, is something we should change. People need to feel like they have skin in the game and can have skin in the game other than by being a PCP, not to knock mm. being a PCP, but sure. you need to have other means to feel connected to your democracy. 
And focusing on the vote even alone isn't enough. Like, are you really going to care that much about something where every two years you get to vote for people you probably don't like? (laughs) No, like that's not compelling for me to really say, oh, I really want to change this system. Right. So I'm 100% with you on that. And one of my things is always like, I hate how everything, whatever news story comes up, will always be viewed like through a certain prism. If you're a Republican, you see it one way. If you're a Democrat, you see it the other way. And there's so many abortion. Each side knows where they stand on abortion. Taxes. Each side knows where they stand on tax. Like every single thing is these predefined roles, even like even foreign policy anymore. Like it, it used to be foreign policy. was just like, nobody really knows enough about it to have kind of a strong opinion, but any, like you, right now the Israel and Palestine thing is going on. And like, I mean, they just had their ceasefire, but you see a lot of like, I stand with Israel. And then you see a lot of like free Palestine. That's kind of a good, you know, way to back into somebody's politics, but something a couple months ago, uh, the, something that happened was, was GameStop was people were buying up GameStop and hedge fund people were going crazy and you know, subredditors were making millions of dollars and it all happened within the span of like one or two days. And nobody knew how to think about that in terms of like, all right, are Democrats for this and Republicans are against like, what do we, and there was a, there was a point where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ted Cruz were like retweeting each other because they both agreed. And it's like, (laughs) oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not used to something being debated in public where two people on the far ends of their party are in agreement. Like somebody like, tell me what to think about something. And you know, for like uh, the three of us and I, uh, of course, any listeners and any watchers of this podcast, like we'll take the time to go through, but for, you know, Joe Sixpack, if you're if, like politics is not the thing that interests you, which not, 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 not knocking Joe Sixpack. I have a six pack in the fridge right now that I will tear into later on tonight. But like, if politics is not the thing that you are passionate about, you're not going to take the effort to just be like, okay, there's this GameStop thing. Like if Donald Trump comes out about it and you're like, I don't like it. If you're a Republican, you're like, all right, I don't like it either then. That's enough for me. But it's it's such a weird way to like, we've already got these preconceived views of like, all right, like I'm, let me just wait till my party says which way to go. Republicans, all right, immigration is bad. Okay, that's what then I don't like immigration and Democrats. Let's open it up. Let's get more people. Okay, now I'm pro like you, everybody already kind of has their set philosophy on things and it's a, it's such a weird way to try to introduce something new that's not already predefined by one of you know whichever ideological side of the spectrum you identify with yeah and i think not to sound too much like a super nerd although my girlfriend would tell you i am i was reading scientific american recently <laughs> and they did a great study where they looked at social media And they basically replicated social media platforms, but without any influencers. Hmm. And they put a bunch of Republicans in one room and a bunch of Democrats in one room, but without those influencers. And they brought up abortion, immigration, gun control. And even within those partisan echo chambers, when there wasn't someone telling them how to think, they ultimately moderated one another. They Hmm. came out with just more kind of centrist opinions. And so then you take a step back and you think, huh, what is really the role of these influencers who are pushing us in these certain directions? Like you said, Nick, folks are just looking for, well, before I say anything, what's AOC saying? Or what is Ted Cruz saying? And then I'll know where to go. And so I think that's why we need not only civic education, which is sorely lacking. I think Mm. in Pew poll, I saw you know, it's like under half of Americans can name the three branches. 
That is so sad. But we also need civic experiences, right? Like, Mm. where is that time in your life when you are contributing to your democracy outside of just a vote? So are you go, are you a part of a committee right now? No one wants to join a Multnomah County commission. You want to know why? Because it's mind numbing to go through Robert's rules <laughs> at seven 30 on a Wednesday. And you're just thinking, yes. when can I leave? Right? Like that's not how people want to get engaged. They want to solve problems. Preach. I mean, Come on, no one wants to go locked up in a Multnomah County boardroom and just go around the table for an hour. They want to, you know, get rid of the potholes on their street or to make sure that their park is safe at night. And we need to create those means of civic engagement that are far more accessible and far more kind of at your door level to get people invested in their democracy. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, Although in defense, of, in defense of Robert's rules. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Says the acting FCRP secretary. Right, right. No, well, I mean, the, the reason Robert's rules is there is to add order to meetings. Once it gets, uh, once people start yelling at each other, uh, you, you don't accomplish anything. And Robert's rules is a way to kind of rein that in. So as I have a uh, 12th edition sitting on my bookshelf over there, it's, it's about that thick. And uh, (laughs) it does a reference frequently. So we accomplished um, so much at the MCRP because we have Robert's rules of it. Let me tell you, we're so, so productive in those meetings. I I see the value, but I think there are so (laughs) many things about like even getting on, let's say a Portland city committee, you know, you have to know the right people to get that nomination, to get through this process. And then you have to know what Robert's rules even is, and you have to get on the agenda and blah, 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 blah. At this point, this doesn't seem like an accessible democracy that really cares what I think about. Yeah. And I, I think to your point, uh, we had Suzanne Weber on on the podcast a while back, newly, newly elected representative uh, from Tillamook. And her campaign uh, manager was on the call as well. And one of the things that really stuck with me is he didn't know she was a Republican until they started talking about her running for office. She was the the mayor of Tillamook. She was on city council. She had 20 years as a teacher, worked in, for, the, for the teachers union, had done all of these things and decided to run for office. He's like, oh, and he had no idea that she was a Republican. And I think that, I think that you, you're absolutely right, that that is the way that we that we kind of break this cycle is focus on issues that that people care about and not so much from a Republican or a Democrat perspective. Just uh, just focus on on better education and fixing potholes. And I think that's a way that that people can get involved. And I don't know, from a policy perspective, maybe have more more elections that don't have that, that are nonpartisan. And, you well, know, this is another podcast we talked about with the, the top two system, like in the Oregon uh, or the Portland mayor, where you get it by by design, you get more moderate candidates when you have a top two system where you do not have party affiliation. You don't have primaries or you have an open primary where everybody's involved. And so, I got to say, just to say I got to shout out to uh, Alaska, which just passed what they call final four voting. So. Top four, make it out of the primaries to the general. And then in the general, there's ranked choice voting. So if you're Lisa Murkowski, right, you're not thinking, what do I have to do to appease my Trump voters in Alaska to get through the primary? 
you're thinking, what can I do that's going to make the most Alaskans want to support me? And aren't those incentives we want in our democracy? Like it just, it seems so common sense. And this is again, where we just need to snap into that democratic imagination and remember that we can have a better system. Yeah. I I look at, you know, pay attention to some of the uh, very conservative Facebook groups and whenever a Republican senator or representative votes in a way that isn't completely with the furthest right member of the party, there's always talks of primaries. There's let's find a candidate to, to replace them, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, it, there would, I think you would not have that issue if you had open primaries, you don't have, <laughs> you don't have the furthest right candidate trying to win or I mean, on, or furthest left on the, on the other side, trying to, usurp a sitting incumbent because they didn't vote a certain way or they didn't they didn't walk out over the the gun bill i was was kind of the biggest talking to a talking to a very conservative friend last night and he said you know my my biggest focus here in oregon right now is we got to get rid of fred gerard he's trampling on the rights of second amendment people and i was just like that's the biggest like i mean god bless like if you're active in politics enough to know who fred gerard is golf clap for you man like honestly (laughs) that's great but like that's the biggest thing like no no so i I, so anyway we're 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 coming up on time um kevin you've been a a fantastic guest we end each show by asking our our guest who their favorite republican is so who do you got so i've got two for you i've got one at the national level and i'm gonna go back to good old tr i love me some teddy roosevelt and i think in aligned with my kind of centrist systems broken mentality if TR were alive today after the 1912 election, he would be advocating for the same things because he <laughs> lost out because the Republican Party fractured and he wasn't able to get enough support. So I think TR really? would would be in our corner. And uh, on the state level, I got to go to Norma Paulus. So oh, nice. She, to me, really embodied this notion of states as laboratories of democracy. She encouraged experimentation and she helped usher in mail-in voting. So hmm. gotta gotta give a shout out to Norma. That's a that's a solid shout out right there. Norma Secretary of State, she actually just passed two years ago, I think. Yes. Uh, we, yeah. we we did a little photo montage at Dorchester. But yeah, that's that those are two two solid Republicans right there. Gotta give it to you. I try. I try. Do my <laughs> research. I like it. All right. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for uh, for being on the show. Definitely appreciate your time. Listeners slash viewers, we have a YouTube now. There's probably six people who are watching this who just got to see Bentley, which listeners tune into the YouTube so you can see my very adorable dog. But uh, we'll catch up with you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.